Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Victor Siao about his book, Carbon Technocracy, Energy Regimes in Modern East Asia, which is out from the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Carbon Technocracy is an account of the modern world that carbon made through the case study of the Fushun Colliery in Manchuria. Carbon technocracy is a system dedicated to the optimal exploitation of fossil fuel resources. And it is, as CL shows, a system of consistent waste, environmental degradation, and labor exploitation, all built on a fantasy of inexhaustible energy mobilized toward endless and accelerating development. Fushun exemplifies the violence, the contradictions, and, as we discuss in this interview, the failures of imagination of successive Japanese Chinese nationalist, and Chinese communist regimes. Carbon technocracy balances macro-level questions about the mutual constitution of nation and global energy regimes with a sensitivity to the individual laborers caught up in these machinations. Okay, so Dr. Xiao, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, So uh, we'd like to uh, ask you first how it is that you came to be interested in uh, the project, the research that became Carbon Technocracy. So uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, uh, Nathan. And also, please feel free to call me Victor. I'm so uh, excited for our conversation today. Uh, in terms of the kind of history of this history, uh, history of this project in particular, I had uh, initially gone to uh, Northeast China, to uh, Manchuria, uh, to study labor migration. I was really interested in the large scale uh, movement of people from North China to uh, the Northeast in the first half of the 20th century, this massive migration, um, particularly since uh, it was it um, sort of crossed over this period when the region became uh, its own kind of uh, state or client state of the Japanese Empire in the 1930s, and uh, and 
I thought that was super interesting because this uh, large-scale migration that was initially uh, an internal migration and perhaps the largest internal migration at that time, you had um, um, you know tens of millions of people moving, uh, that this would then become an international migration, essentially an international migration. So that was what piqued my interest in the, in the region and what uh, got me um, started on this. And as I uh, began the research, I thought it was it would have been I mean, it would be most productive to uh, pick a kind of receiving site and sort of work out uh, the the stories of the, the migrant laborers from there. And uh, as I went into the archives, uh, Fushun jumped out at me as this place that would be so um, great to tell those stories in part because of the rich sort of documentary uh, record that exists for it in, in the archives. Uh, but at the same time, I was also um, taken by the fact that what they were mining there was coal, what the folks were, were uh, mining off the ground was coal, uh, and uh, of the just the um, sort of the, the sort of large-scale nature of this enterprise that uh, fueled not only the Japanese empire. Um, at one point, it was in the early 1930s, uh, this accounted for about four-fifths of it, it, it fusion itself of the coal uh, mined in Manchuria, and it was uh, also about a sixth of the coal that was mined throughout the whole Japanese empire. So this was a really kind of, uh, pivotal site, and it, it continued to be the largest coal mine in China um, for a while after the revolution too. So this, and I and so it's sort of telling both the story of the the folks who worked the coal and then the coal itself, the stories of these two um, these. Uh, these two threads, that's what sort of brought me to Fushun and kept me there for over a decade. Yeah, so that actually uh, is really clarifying for me because I, I didn't realize that about your sort of journey to to this book um, because you do have uh, a real sort of sensitivity to uh, the workers, the individual people uh, who are involved in these sort of you know mega infrastructure projects and the creation of these energy economies. Um, and so you know, in in talking about these webs of mutual influence between fossil fuel extraction and the shape of modern states and societies. Um, and again, using you know 20th century Manchurian coal mining as your sort of core case study, uh, you really, yeah, you're you're, you're also um, in a lot of places juxtaposing these sort of mega sites and projects with the the sort of workers. And that was one of the um, you know sort of stylistically interesting things about the book. But now I see where it uh, where it comes from. That's really cool. Um, so I wanted to jump into the introduction here because. Uh, we've already sort of begun to segue into it, right? The, uh, the, the first question I wanted to sort of put to you um, is um, one of the things that I noticed about the book, right, is that it covers this period of time in which there are enormous historical, economic, social disruptions and disjunctions. You have Imperial Japan, Republican China, Communist China. Um, and all of this is, as you point out in the book, very contingent in how things uh, sort of really play out. But it, the other thing that really struck me about the book is the incredible continuities when it comes to these sort of three, I think, central themes that you have, um, waste, environmental destruction, and labor exploitation, right? And so it's kind of within that framework that I want to um, have a conversation with you about the book. And I want to start with um, the following, right? So you argue, and, and this is a, 
uh, a quote from the from the introduction, uh, we inhabit a world that carbon made. And so a big part of that world is what you call carbon technocracy, the, the uh, title of the book. Uh, so what is carbon technocracy, right? Um, and why is it important to understanding this world of modern states and fossil fuels that we live in? Or to sort of borrow your own question, how did the political nature of energy shape the nature of politics? No, thank you for that question. So I'll start with the, the definitional one. You know, what what uh, do I mean by carbon technocracy? Uh, as I see it, carbon technocracy is uh, both an ideology and the techno-political system that adherence to that ideology uh, bring into being. Um, it's predicated on this extensive exploitation of fossil fuels for various status objectives, uh, particularly through means that are deemed uh, scientific or technological. And uh, bound up with it uh, were all these self-associated features, uh, such as an embrace of coal-fired development. Uh, So you might want to think of it as kind of a fossil fuel developmentalism. Uh, This focus on the expansion of heavy industry, uh, a fixation on national autarky, the glorification of labor-saving mechanization, uh, the um, idealization of cheap energy, or how you know economic growth, even as uh, as an objective and a goal, uh, was often defined in terms of increases in energy production and consumption. Uh, so those are some of the sort of features I see as as defining of what I call carbon technocracy. Um, and as to how it then relates to, you know, the world that carbon made, uh, this goes to one of the, I mean, a, a basic premise of the book, which is that, you know, we see um, uh, at this moment in, in the soft late 19th and or the 19th and, and 20th centuries, the, the rise of the modern state, as well as the emergence of this carbon economy. Uh, but these were not just um, events that happened at the same time. Uh, these were, uh, and so I contend, self-co-constitutive, that's to say that, you know, the fossil fuel um, economy made possible the modern state and the modern state, the fossil fuel economy. And uh, this is in part a response to uh, fellow scholars who study the history of energy. And, and in this you know, field that we might call energy history, one of the, if not the biggest questions is, how do we account for you know, the fossil fuel transition, right? This shift towards the intensive use of fossil fuels that is at the heart of uh, climate change and our, cl- our current you know, planetary crisis. Um, and these scholars have done a really great job in spotlighting f- factors that range from super large ones like, you know, the forces of capitalism, to smaller ones like um, the choices of individual consumers, uh, these smaller factors that may become quite large in the aggregate. Uh, but what has tended to be left out, um, or at least sort of, uh, left in the background of these various narratives has been the state. And so I thought it would be important to bring the state back in here. Um, and this was you know, particularly because of how essential energy has been to the various sort of objectives, the ambitions, the aspirations, the activities of states uh, from economic development to the waging of war. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I contend that energy has been um, thus both this 
uh, important objective of states, something that you know states have sought to acquire, to to master, to harness, uh, but at the same time also uh, a kind of main means by which they exercise their power, and so that is is one of the the kind of underlying um, sort of. Uh, um, sort of assumptions of the book from which I sort of uh, proceed. Yeah, and um, so you then jump into, uh, in chapter one, Vertical Natures, uh, the story of how and why uh, these Japanese interests took over the colliery at Fushun, which you've already started to talk about. Uh, And so you tell this story in chapter one as one of, uh, quote, both literal and metaphorical verticality. So you've got these two vertical axes. What were they? um, And and how did they uh, relate to this story of Manchurian coal that you're telling throughout the rest of the book? Yeah, uh, I mean, this first chapter, as as most first chapters are, is kind of a scene setter, right? So here's where I introduce Fushun and I situate it uh, geographically and historically. Um, but uh, at the same time, and, and you know, this was one of the, the challenges in, in writing this, is I didn't just want this to sort of set the scene. I wanted this to also have um, an argument that would carry through to the through. Uh, to the rest of the 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 account and the narrative and the study, um, and so I thought this concept of verticality um, did it well in terms of you know, the literal verticality, being you know the, the vertical depths that the which allows me to talk about the formation of coal in this area over tens of millions of years, but also the geological sciences that were applied uh, and sort of employed by by Japanese experts and their Chinese assistants in ascertaining the size and value of these deposits. Um, and then the work of the the mostly Chinese miners uh, to recover these resources, and this is something I expand further upon in in the in the second uh, chapter. Uh, but metaphorically, it also points to the hierarchy between uh, the Japanese colonial company there, the South Manchuria Railway Company, uh, Omantetsu, um, and I'll say a little bit more about this soon, as, as well as the, the Chinese who lived and labored in this mining town. So, um, I mean, coal had been mined in Fushun for, um, for sort of, uh, you know, centuries prior, or and... Um, but during the Qing Dynasty, uh, that sort of was from the uh, roughly the the seventeenth century, uh, mid seventeenth century, sixteen forty four to to nineteen twelve, um, coal had been, the the court the the Manchu uh, Qing court had uh, banned mining uh, in this area because of the proximity to uh, the imperial mausoleums. Uh, the fear was that you know by digging for coal you might have damage, disrupt the dragon veins that pulsated from these sites. Um, but you know the the fact that these these bans would continually be issued um, over those centuries would sort of suggest that mining still continued surreptitiously at least, or at least, at least to the to to some degree. Um, but you know our story really begins uh, here in, in terms of the the, the collieries history. Uh, with the opening of mines uh, at the turn of the 20th century by Chinese uh, businessmen who secure the rights to mine coal in the area. Um, and this draws in Japanese, uh, Russian capital, I beg your pardon. Um, and and um, it's upon the, the basis of this Russian capital that uh, Japan would lay claim to the mines after its victory in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, 1904-1905. Uh, and it's soon after this that um, the Japanese government 
uh, forms the uh, South Manchuria Railway Company as a semi-private, um, semi-public um, corporation and uh, places uh, the Fushun Colliery uh, under uh, this uh, enterprise. And I mean, it should be noted that uh, uh, beyond the railway itself, uh, which was you know the major operations of this South Manchuria Railway Company, which might be uh, compared to the British East India Company, um, the the mine was uh, sort of it, its its biggest enterprise and the one that it would hold on to uh, for um, you know the, the almost four decades uh, to follow, um, and so in terms of this um, verticality, then it, it sort of points to the the sort of tensions between this colonial company and the and the both the, the residents uh, who, who uh, the Chinese residents uh, within Fushun, uh, uh, whose you know land oftentimes would be um, sort of, uh, would be either seized or disrupted by the company's operations. For instance, if the, the company would uh, mine uh, the subsurface mining uh, underneath uh, Chinese domiciles and 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 buildings and sort of resulting in collapses into into these these tunnels, um, and that was sort of a, a point of tension. But I think one of the the things that I wanted to draw forward uh, in this in, in this or wanted to sort of put forward in this as this in this chapter um, was that uh, was that you know you had these various. Um, Disputes that oftentimes were, were were sort of legal disputes over over property, um, and uh, the the company would uh, occasionally settle for it and and pay pay reparations for let's say the removal of graves, um, uh, or or some damage to property, but it was oftentimes only in the the company's terms. Uh, uh, for instance, if they if they had seized. Uh, Sort of mining areas, it, uh, they may pay some restitution for it, but not sort of return the mines to Chinese possession, and so um, that was sort of part of the story that I wanted to um, sort of map out here, which was uh, which was sort of representative of this kind of social inequality uh, that we would see running through uh, the subsequent chapters. Yeah, uh, it's a nice segue into chapter two, technological enterprise, because at the beginning of chapter two, um, you start off with this uh, postcard uh, with the caption, the grand site of the open working Hushim Colliery. Um, And the uh, mine is this sort of huge, is really monstrous pit. I, I, I was one of the uh, really compelling illustrations you had in the book, um, and it's you know, sort of visible um, and, and and spectacular. And then the workers are basically invisible. Um, and and this I thought was you know again going back to that sort of interest that you had um, in the sort of labor and migration here. That's uh, it was. Um, I understand better uh, how this sort of fits into to that uh, origins of the project. Um, but it's also, I think, related in an interesting way to this other problematic that you point out here in this chapter, right? Um, and that is that um, despite the prioritization of energy output, um, which eventually makes Fushun the largest coal mine in Asia, it's also uh, a huge consumer of energy. Right. And I think it seems to me that you're you're arguing that these two issues are um, interrelated. And if I'm right about that, I'd love to uh, have you explain that a little bit. 
Sure thing. I mean, first of all, thanks for picking up on the postcard, which is really my favorite to show of the open pit whenever I give a talk. And if I ever have a slide to, to show, that's oftentimes the first one to I, I, I put up, um, in part because it just, as you say, captures that expanse. Um, but also, interestingly, the I mean, notice the Japanese caption on that includes a phrase that's missing from, you know, the, the English caption that you read, which also is, you know, uh, or the inexhaustible treasure house, which is um, part of this kind of chronocopianistic kind of thinking that I'm, I'm, I'm critiquing as well. Um, but yeah, and, indeed, I mean, this, this, this uh, picture of the mine, I, I, I mean, I, and one of the reasons why I sort of foregrounded it is I, I thought that it kind of captured the, um, this vision that, uh, you know, Japanese engineers and um, planners and policymakers had of a site like this, where you know they sort of embrace the technological sublime. This uh, you know this concept that uh, uh, that that has been sort of um, developed and 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 taken uh, has been taken up by by uh, sort of historians of technology like you know uh, David Nye and and um, and uh, Leo Martz and and the like. But where you, we see um, sort of this the, the 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 one is sort of struck by the by nature that's transformed uh by machines on such a scale that sort of replicates you know uh uh the natural you know our source of the original source of sub subliminal uh experiences um and and so this, but you know, on the one hand, it's this kind of then fetishization of the power of the machines to do all of this, and the open pit mine is the you know, is 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 the idealization of it, and it, but it then subsequently dwarfs the the workers, and the you know, of which there were you know, consistently tens of thousands uh, working on site. Uh, and not only are they sort of rendering them invisible, but the the hope with the, with mechanization and sort of an unrealized um, aspiration here was that the workers would also be increasingly rendered unnecessary to the process. This was uh, the, the uh, against you know the, particularly in the aftermath of the First World War and the and the, and. Um, uh, when sort of the rise of social, sort of the, the the surge in social movements in Japan, um, you know, with the rice riots and the like, that the fears of 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 strikes, of fears of uh, uh, the uh, volatility of labor, but also I mean, in, Manchur- in the Manchurian context, is the mobility of this labor uh, that uh, workers who took better paying jobs elsewhere, um, and so mechanization in that sense. Held that promise of of um, of uh, sort of ent- uh, sort of resolving this anticipated challenge, uh, if you might want to think of it that way. Um, yeah, I think there's always that yeah. sense that like something is always being deferred, right? We never actually get to the solution that keeps getting promised for each problem, and then yeah, yeah. and that's where the technocracy comes in uh, to this as well, um, but. Uh, sort of in regard to your your second observation as well, you know this was a um, a coal mine that produced a lot of energy for the empire and subsequent states, but was also a massive consumer of energy. Um, and this, uh, you know, I I 
sort of track on on at least two levels. One of which is is the 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 sort of great use of inanimate energy to even power operations on site. And but one of the so the coal that was mined from the site to sort of be burned to power to to generate electricity or, or power steam engines to um to run operations. But it's not only for purely for extractive purposes, but it's really to hold this entire technological assemblage together. And this is evident in um, particularly around sort of moments of where you have an accident. So, you know, in 1917, there's a, there's a large, uh, you know, one of the, the largest um, uh, explosions uh, and accidents to happen, uh, here, disasters to happen uh, in Fushun, uh, where you have 917 people perish. Um, at this explosion, the Oyama pit, and the um, and you know the and nine hundred Chinese, nine hundred of them were Chinese, seventeen uh, Japanese, which kind of goes back again once to the sort of um, unequal distribution of even um, costs of these this extractive enterprise. Uh, but one of the the things I point out here is that you know uh, what was blown out in the the extraction process in the explosion was the ventilation fan room at the top which prevented the sort of regulation uh, which which meant then that you know air was then sucked back and they couldn't regulate the the air anymore it was sucked back into the mine fed the fire it became an even bigger disaster or we might want to think of like you know when the um after the fall of the japanese empire the the soviet union comes in occupies the area for a while takes away uh, i mean loots as 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 the as the soviets do in much of industrial manchuria much of the um, machinery but including power generating uh, facilities uh, and and power generating um, uh, uh, sort of, uh, power generators and the like and this results in like massive flooding because you aren't able to sort of pump the mine so and and uh, and um, and it takes then years uh, to to sort of recover operations to kind of pre-war levels um, so in that sense it's about you know how energy both uh, is it's also kind of used to sort of hold this this site together and in the absence of which it kind of comes apart again um and and then the second aspect of it is you know the constant reliance on human energy in spite of uh in spite of the the efforts and and the the of 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 these engineers and technocrats to diminish uh the role of of workers uh in in these extractive processes um and so and I mean, and, and I think you know, just to sort of uh, 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 round off this 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 comment here, um, that this is then kind of, uh, kind of gets to a bigger point that I'm trying to make uh, here, which is the mine. I mean, this this speaks to the operations at the mine and how you know mines work in general and sites of extraction can work, but it's also sort of reflective and a, sort of a metaphor, sort of a microcosm of the large industrial world whereby we see all of these forces um, at play as well. And so uh, the world in the mind, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. And I was, I was struck um, reading this particular, particularly this part of the book um, with this sort of uh, contrast between uh, the fast, spectacular violence of the 1917 um, accident and the sort of slow, grinding, miserable violence of waste and labor exploitation and, um, you know, environmental degradation. And I think that was a, it's a sort of, it's something that, um, you know, I don't, 
I, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything more to it, just to, than to say like that. That struck me as a really interesting um, sort of problem in understanding this history. That right, it's very easy to look, oh, look, explosion, and think that that's what happened, but that actually the sort of daily grind is where really uh, we can, you know. <laughs> I, I, unearth is obviously not the word I'm looking for here, but you know, sort of see see what's going on, um, and and it it's sort of interesting, you know, for me that the transition that you make from this chapter, which is very much sort of literally like in the ground and at the at the collier, um, to jumping to uh, chapter three, fueling anxieties, right, where you get into the scientific um, and policy debates uh, around the fuel question, as it was called, you know, the Nenyo Mondai um, in Japan. Uh, and so I want to talk about this a little bit, because it was really interesting to me. You use a, a speech made by Goto Shinpei to the Fuel Society um, in 1925, and you're using this to bracket a discussion of uh, resource extraction in Manchuria and how it came to define the empire's relationship to energy. So first, obviously, we have to talk a little bit about who's this Goto Shinpei guy um, and what what's a fuel society. Um, so if you could tell us about those things first, um, and then... Think a little bit about um, the. I want to push you on something. Okay, that, that's the short version, right? So I want to ask you whether you think that um, the need for energy in in Japan, or at least the perceived need for for sort of fast energy uh, for growth, allowed a kind of retconning, right? So what I mean is that like this self interest in hey, we need this energy for you know Japan um, was a structuring factor in, um, you know, creating imperial thinking and pra- imperialist thinking and practice, right? So Goto says uh, it's the mission of the Amato race. That actually, what the mission is, is exploitation of everyone else's resources. Um, and it seems to me that, like, there's this convenient, um, yeah, retconning, backfilling from the conclusion to say that, like, it's actually sacred mission, not exploitation. And I, I certainly don't think Japan is alone in this. But you're, you're very measured in your conclusion here in the chapter. And I just want to poke you and see if I can get you to say something a little bit more extreme about this. <laughs> it sounds great. So let, let's start with who Goto Shinpei was. You know, it's the most, perhaps the, the, the most famous or infamous of individuals in the history of the Japanese empire. Uh, a medical doctor by by training, who then becomes the first head of civilian affairs under the governor, um, the governor general of Taiwan. He's also the first uh, president of the South Manchuria Railway Company, Mantetsu, and takes up you know a number of important political positions in the home islands after, uh, including number in the cabinet. You know, he's communications minister, home minister, foreign minister, um, and he's also. Um, for, for, for a while, for a spell, mayor of Tokyo, a very important political position. Um, and so uh, so that's Goto. I mean, he's endlessly fascinating person. Um, and I, I took particular pleasure in actually physically describing him in this chapter because I, you know, I've read tons about Goto here and there, Goto here and there, but I've, you know, never actually... Yeah, and he's got a very characteristic look, but it's seldom sort of described. And so I, I, I took some <laughs> pleasure. Yeah, in- that's a really good point. So I, I lived in um, Iwate for eight years, which is where he's from. And so there's depictions of him here and there. And yes, it's definitely worth uh, reading the description, checking out a photo if you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as as for the the fuel society or the Ninyo Kyokai, uh, uh, where, you know, to whom he was giving the speech, 
uh, this was um, a society that was formed in 1922 uh, and sort of uh, expressly to address the fuel problem. And the this society included, um, you know, scientists and engineers, it included military officials, uh, government bureaucrats. And um, I mean, it was one of these uh, associations that, I, I mean, it wasn't sort of, uh, you know, someone's primary place of work. It was an association that drew folks from various sectors together um, and was meant as a, a site for exchanging ideas and information um, about some of the, you know, the latest uh, research in, in fuels. And, um, but I mean, again, the, the main concern was addressing what was defined as the fuel question of the Nino Monday, which became particularly pronounced after the First uh, World War. And so the First World War serves as as kind of a major turning point I I see at least in this particular um this particular story uh in that this is when um oil uh the sort of the strategic importance of oil becomes very uh pronounced and um anxieties emerge around uh the lack of access to it but it's also around it's also sort of um it also converges uh this development converges with uh um a greater commitment to uh, sort of national autarky or sort of autarkic thinking, um, particularly with the um, uh, you know the the blockades that occurred during the the First World War that you know affected not only countries that were engaged in the fighting itself but also everyone else. And so you know what does a country need in order to to um, uh, sort of to what could we become self sufficient in? In, in the event that something like this would happen again. So those were some of the sort of background um, sort of uh, concerns around the so-called fuel question and fear over um, Japan's uh, scarcity, uh, uh, sort of perceived scarcity of these resources. Um, I mean, it's a pretty complicated story because it also gets to a whole bunch of things like, you know, the Washington Naval Convention uh, and the size of the Japanese fleet in relation to the, the British and American ones. Um, but uh, this was not only sort of, I mean, it's oftentimes spoken of as, you know, the fuel question or the oil question, but also the coal question because this this was a, a moment in which there was um, uh, con- you know, concurrent fears of, of uh, not not only sort of present scarcity but future scarcity as well, and th- this is um, about you know how uh, sort of the, the relative paucity of Japan's uh, coal resources in relation to uh, these other uh, imperial powers of of the age. Um, but then kind of getting to your big question, right, which is this, this story of what's the relationship then between energy and empire? Um, and, you know, I see this, uh, at least in relation to, you know, Japan and Manchuria first, uh, 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 you know, empires have preceded this kind of extra- extraction of, of energy uh, and extraction of coal resources specifically, Um I mean, it was it sort of came in a bundle uh, with with the railway concessions that were 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 um, sort of seized or, or, or sort of bequeathed or you know taken over from the Russians uh, uh, after the the Russo Japanese War, um, but then you know as energy became 
more and f- became a, a, a greater a, an issue of greater concern, some of these resources would be tapped more extensively. So this would you know account for then the the hope to um, uh, to sort of extensively mine places like Fushun through open pit mining, uh, but subsequently also develop. Um, alternative fuels um, through uh, these sites. So, I mean, in particular, so we talked about a little bit about the scarcity of, 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 of oil. Um, and, you know, Fushun becomes the site where Japan develops its first um, shale oil industry as well. And this was, the, this was sort of made possible by open pit mining because these thick, this kind of thick seams of, of, of oil shale that overlay the coal uh, that would be sort of removed from the ground as overburden anyway with open pit mining. So, um, uh, and and subsequently also, uh, you know, coal hydrogenation, the um, liquefaction of coal, turning coal uh, into into a sort of you know a synthetic petroleum, um, uh, something which Japanese engineers and chemists were in uh, constant dialogue with with I mean with, with the uh, sort of colleagues uh, in Germany at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for instance, and, and sort of sharing similar concerns over these issues. Um, but, you know, I think, so, but kind of returning once again to your, 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 your kind of question about, you know, does this, is, uh, to what extent were the dice loaded, I guess, toward this, you know, what one might think of as a kind of Pearl Harbor narrative. You know, I mean, and, and this is sort of, I mean, I didn't, I sort of wanted to write against um, that necessitates of the 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 you know the the slippery oily road to Pearl Harbor um, by sort of thinking about, I mean, uh, in in two ways. One, you know, the 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 range of possibilities that were explored by uh, these Japanese planners, engineers, um, technocrats around um, sort of scientific solutions to the fuel problem. Uh, including, you know, synthetic petroleum and, and shale oil on the one hand, but also kind of um, recognizing that there were these um, sort of what we might think of as imperialistic um, lines of think uh, sort of uh, sort of uh, lines of thinking and, and rationales that persisted before, um, but that also kind of mirrored what we would see in other empires uh, at. In the interwar period, so not so. I mean that the Japanese Empire was no exception to these kind of concerns. Um, and I mean, one of the the striking uh, examples that I had was um, that I mean I found super compelling was the you know, Fuel Society um, holds this essay competition around the fuel uh, question, and the the winning entry is uh, by this um, uh, this army uh, personnel. And he um, talks about, you know, almost sort of green with envy uh, as to, you know, what the Americans were doing and elbowing uh, their way into the scramble for oil uh, in, in the Middle East at that time and the kind of admiration that he and, you know, other folks would have towards um, sort of the U.S. empire. Uh, and so uh, I tried to at least do uh, in this chapter was to sort of, uh, I mean, not to excuse Japan for this uh, by by any means, but to you know really s- see the Japanese Empire as um, one amongst others that were sort of engaged in this contestation over uh, energy resources 
Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, I mean, normal obviously doesn't mean good, <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I, maybe to push you just a little bit further on this, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about um, is essentially uh, something along the line of um, Ibram Kendi's argument about the origins of racism, right? You know, so his uh, idea to sort of way, way oversimplify it is, uh, economics comes first, and then you come up with racism in order to pursue those economic needs, right? That the, the racism is sort of the byproduct that facilitates. Um, and I wondered, you know, to, to what extent you see, um, not in that in quite that oversimplified a way, but that interaction between um, the kinds of um, labor exploitation, environmental degradation, um, these sort of big themes that you're dealing with, how you see that in relation to these questions about you know, what we would might call race or ethnicity on the one hand, and these sort of economic um, and military and imperial imperatives on the other. Yeah, no, th- thank you for that. I mean, I think... Um... I mean, at the, at the onset of, of uh, Montez's operations in Fushun, for instance, uh, part of the appeal, uh, I mean, it, it was sort of the, I mean, in some sense, it was kind of the economics of racism, right? You could, you could then um, pay, uh, I mean, the perceived uh, lower standard of living of Chinese workers would allow them to pay, uh, you know, Chinese laborers less for um the work that they did, and, and this was very evident in some sort of the um, sort of extensive records the company kept, where by you know time and time again you see that uh, in instances where Chinese and Japanese occupied the same uh, position or similar functions, that you know the the, the Chinese worker would be paid much less um, for it. But I guess one of the ironies of this um, comes up around the time of the the Great Depression. And whereby um, the uh, the uh, the company started sort of uh, hiring many more uh, Chinese workers than they did some sort of the, the Japanese uh, workers who had sort of you know moved to Manchuria to work for the company there, uh, which sort of resulted you know in 
in um, these uh, sort of, uh, I mean, uh, protests amongst the the, the Japanese uh, workers um, and and saying you know companies not we've come all the way and you know the Japanese uh, this this company is not sort of uh, looking out for our interests and and we also I mean but it's sort of I, I sort of looked at uh, sort of read this alongside you know the persistent you know sort of imbalances uh, of, of pay uh, and, and, and and access to facilities um, um, in sort of the, the, the preceding years that sort of foreclosed possibilities of like, you know, class solidarity between Chinese workers and Japanese workers on site, that it became then kind of racialized also, uh, at least on that, at, at that particular instance. Yeah, and I mean, here again, I think, you know, Japan, normal, not necessarily good, right? Yeah, that's the sort of classic story in some ways. And I actually thought this was, you know, one of the, um, you know, as you've pointed out, it's one of the interesting things about this particular case study that you're doing is that um, it, it does end up uh, putting Japan within a context where uh, it in many ways looks like a lot of other empires. And I think you know, we, we've, uh, you know, as historians of Japan, most of us have gotten past that idea of, you know, sort of a, some sort of exceptional Japanese empire. I mean, there are certainly distinguishing features, right? But I think, but one of the things that you're bringing out is those kind of, dare I say, universals of um, empires of this particular period. Um, and another thing that you're bringing out um, in the in the book, uh, in a couple of different places, is um, the transformative effects of war. So we've talked about the Russo-Japanese War. We've talked about World War One in particular in the last chapter. Um, and your next chapter, uh, which is called Imperial, in, uh, excuse me, Imperial Extraction, um, brings us to what is essentially the the long World War II um, and what you call the warscape of intensification. Um, and so you're arguing, quote energy in empire tended toward overextension and eventual exhaustion. And for me, you know, one of the surprising revelations from, from the book and specifically something you deal with the chapter is that Manchuria's coal-fueled economy is eating itself alive, right? We talked earlier in chapter one about how uh, this um, extremely, um, excuse me, chapter two, about how you have this extremely energy-intensive energy producer. And it seems like the balance tips over here um, in this new war context. Um, it becomes so dependent on its own coal that it, it's an ineffective source of, of coal for, every, for you know, export. Um, and uh, this is, you know, at the same time that, you know, production is up and Manchuria is moving toward the sort of managed economy of wartime. Um, so wh what's going on here? Like what's going right? What's going wrong? Um, and what then is uh, exacerbated? What's worsened by that warscape of intensification uh, in the 30s into the 40s? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as you point out, the 30s uh, marks a, an important um, shift and transformation in the Manchurian coal economy. And this is in part because of the establishment of Manchukuo. Guo. Um, Following the 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 Mukden incident and sort of Japan's invasion of Manchuria and then the setting up of this of this client state there, um, and uh, and one of the sort of um, governing principles of the of the Manchukuo economy was that it would was supposed to sort of uh, develop independently of Japan and was uh, and it was of a, 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 a greater attention to its. Um, 
its own kind of industrialization, uh, and that you know it would not only be a source for uh, it would be less uh, as in the past a, a source of just pure you know raw material uh, extraction for the for the um, for the metropole, and more uh, about the you know the production of finished goods the um, and, and and the building up of an arsenal there this kind of image of the the fortress Manchuria if you want to think of it that way and um but this uh quickly sort of unravels by you know as as the war breaks out and um and you know uh, uh, Manchuria itself then becomes increasingly more sort of sort of reconnected to the the, the metropole as a, as a site for um resource extraction uh and uh, I mean, and this is, uh, and part of it is also um, the uh, the the ways in which the coal mining industry in Japan uh, was was sort of hard hit by the war, uh, but also um, you know what we see in Manchuria too, uh, uh, and, and which would also be sort of mirrored in Manchuria. We you know we have uh, more and more. Um, Sort of inexperienced individuals being conscripted to work the mines, uh, and in the Manchurian case, this would include uh, prisoners of war uh, and other um, sort of captured individuals who were uh, euphemistically called special workers and put it through really uh, terrible conditions, and which I try to um, detail um, in in this chapter. Um, as part of this kind of squeeze uh, for for more of these resources, but also with the um, with the um, with the blockades uh, post Pearl Harbor, uh, in which you have uh, few and fewer uh, um, supplies for you know re- replacement machinery and replacement parts um, reaching uh, Manchuria that. Uh, resulted in, uh, this is, you know, in addition to many of these uh, manufacturers being sort of requisitioned for producing specifically for military uh, needs. And, um, and and this sort of result in sort of the deterioration of, you know, even the, 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 the technological infrastructure of um, these mining operations in places like Fushun. Um, so that you see, I mean, it's this notable sort of um, swelling of a, of this of the labor force, but then a, 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 a sort of precipitous dip in in production as 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 the as the war uh, continues as well. So this kind of um, warscape of intensification, I I I describe um, is is. Yeah, in a sense, this is sort of an extension of what you observed earlier in terms of you know energy, uh, sites of energy production requiring um, uh, more and more energy. Even you know places where uh, Japan would subsequently expand into requiring more of these resources, uh, energy resources to um, to hold and to um, and to sort of maintain at this similar level of production as before. Yeah, I kept feeling like I was reading a sort of parable about, um, uh, you know, law of diminishing returns or sort of, you know, some, some sort of logical fallacy about uh, the, the 
um, what the you know the Japanese phrase "jisenshasogyo" comes to mind, right? That feeling that like you're you're um, it's like a pyramid scheme, right? In a sense where uh, you're you're just trying to outrun the the horrible destruction that you're leaving in your own path, right? Um, and 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 that you know it seemed to me um, in some interesting ways, right? To, I'm also at, at the moment I'm reading Tim Snyder's Bloodlands, which is the you know the uh, for those who are not familiar, it's the the history of um, the area between the German and Soviet empires, right? So what's now Ukraine and uh, et cetera um, during that period. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me was this um, sort of rapacious uh, extraction of extra calories to feed the metropole or in, in the case of Fushun and the collieries and so on and so forth of extra calories to feed the machines of the metropole. And the extraordinary destruction that that's sort of based on struck me as, you know, sort of a fascinating parallel, not only because it's happening at the same time, but some of the same players are even involved, right? In the sense that you have the Soviets on either end of that. Um, So the uh, chapter five takes us on this really interesting sort of shift into the uh, post-war period. Um, and suddenly we have um, the uh, the nationalists, uh, the KMT, the Kuomintang government um, controlling the Fushun colliery for just this brief interlude uh, after Japanese defeat. Um, and so this is the chapter, Nationalist Reconstruction. Um, and, you know, again here, what's, what was sort of uh, really striking to me was the um, the the continuities in terms of policy uh, about reconstruction with the, the sort of technocratic policies of the 20s and 30s. Um, and this is a really complicated narrative you're laying out here, which covers a, a bunch of complicated decades. Um, so I just want to sort of try and pare down the discussion a little bit for uh, the purposes of the podcast. But it seems to me you're arguing that the Japanese and Chinese carbon technocracies are sort of state-driven responses to similar crisis conditions. Um, and that explains some of why they end up looking so much alike. So I want to focus on um, the, why KMT developmentalism, technocracy, and the successes and failures uh, of both end up mirroring the, their Japanese counterparts, um, especially during that sort of brief window after Japanese defeat when we had that Soviet looting, etc. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, as you said, this the, the period in which the the KMT, the Chinese nationalists, hold on to Fushun is, is a really sort of brief one. Uh, but then I sort of use this to bookend uh, a longer discussion of uh, coal mining and the nationalist state uh, from the 1920s uh, into, into the 40s. And um, I mean, one sort of common uh, um, sort, of, uh, sort of common factor between uh, the the Japanese and Chinese uh, imperial Japanese and Chinese nationalist experiences is is sort of this um, is both the preparation for and um, the actual engagement in war right and uh, and this is when you know the the National Resources Commission which I see as the nationalist state's you know highest um, sort of institutional institutionalized form of carbon technocracy. Um, uh, 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 is able to sort of extend its reach into the management of uh, the coal sector, and and is able to sort of advance uh, a lot of um, these sort of state 
status kind of plans for the development of this industry. Just briefly about the the National Resources Commission. I mean, I think it's this really super fascinating um, institution. Uh, and uh, apart from the the army, the most uh, um, the sort of government agency that employed the most people. Uh, so that that itself should be striking. But it uh, was uh, staffed by you know. Uh, uh, largely by by engineers and technicians uh, who would um, coordinate the um, operations uh, at you know coal mines and other sort of sites of industry and um, and you know some of these plans had started kind of stewing in the 1930s particularly after the the Mukden incident and uh, once it seemed as if you know um, the the uh, Sort of military engagement or war with Japan uh, was 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 going to be sort of within uh, sort of on the horizon, um, but and it was also sort of precipitated specifically in the in the in the coal um, story in terms of the, in, the, in terms of the, the coal industry by a case of coal famine in Shanghai uh, uh, in 1931. So after the the Mukden, um, again after Mukden incident, you know, this was uh, sparked off by a boycott of Japanese coal, including coal from Fushun, um, but then resulted in these these severe shortages of of fuel, uh, which underscored then the dependence of Chinese industries on coal imports, um, and then the relative underdevelopment of domestic coal resources. And so the nationalist regime then moves in to adopt all these measures, ranging from you know regulating competition to running its own mines, and um, and this would sort of reach its uh, uh, its most. Um, its its fullest form uh, once the nationalist government is um, sort of operating uh, in in the interior during the war um, and uh, and its development of of the mines in the in the southwest and something that would then extend to its um, the mines that it then takes over including Fushun. Um, in the in the in the post war period or I mean post um, Second Sino Japanese War. Uh, slash into the civil war, the, the Chinese civil war. Um, and and so, I mean, to me here, it's it, the soft, soft point. I mean, this is a, a, a soft general point I'm making, but, you know, how war becomes this um, and soft, uh, how the, the, the conditions of war leads uh, as a, uh, Sort of laid the, the the foundation for the advancement of these kind of technocratic ambitions, or allow some of these ambitions to reach fruition. But also, war in this sense um, proved, I mean, as with the self warscape of intensification, this kind of undoing. And one specific um, uh, uh, sort of episode or specific sort of thing that I want to bring up in regard to the nationalist management of Wushun was their sort of deep commitment to keeping energy cheap and keeping coal. Uh, prices sort of uh, cheap in the midst of this self skyrocketing inflation, um, and you know this idea of cheap energy. I mean, was not only sort of embraced then. Then I mean, there was something that Sun Yat-sen, you know, the f- uh, father of the the Chinese nation, um, had um, had sort of laid out in his industrial plan. Uh, more than two decades prior, and this became the blueprint for the nationalist state's developmentalist, um, uh, developmentalist vision, and would also sort of inform uh, the plans that were laid by 
institutions like the National Resources Commission. Uh, but because they were suppressing uh, coal prices, they were actually unable to sort of recover uh, operation, uh, sort of, uh, sort of uh, costs to operating costs uh, and sort of pay or even feed workers. And so, I mean, one of the things I point out here is this kind of while, you know, this, this uh, I mean, there was this kind of almost, um, there, was, there was this uh, uh, measure of, cruelty of sort of denying calories to the people who were uh, you know, deeply engaged in sort of extracting from the earth the calories that were powering the war machine at the same time. And so that was um, one of the ways in which uh, this, this um, sort of uh, entire kind of mechanism started to unravel, at least, um, I mean, uh, it, with, with the nationalists in Fushun. Yeah, and, I, and and you know this is um, getting back to something that we talked a little bit about earlier, which is the really prominent role of um, not peacetime economic development, but wartime economic. Um, I guess development's not quite the right word, but wartime economics, um, how that's been you know, a major factor in creating these uh, carbon technocracies, and, and you know it struck me that again to to, to go back to that earlier. Uh, point that I made about the the really fascinating uh, contrast between sort of fast and slow violence, that this is yet another kind of um, sort of violence here that, you know, you have the uh, the violence of, of war being this um, factor that's, you know, creating societies, right? And that's creating yet another kind of destruction Right, it's creating environmental destruction. It's creating um, waste. It's creating uh, labor exploitation, which are not the sort of uh, direct sorts of violence we think about in war, but are obviously really important and, and have had an incredible, uh, incredibly powerful legacy. As you say, it's the world world we live in. Yeah, which is another way of saying. Uh, by the time I got to chapter six, I knew that it was not going to be an enlightening, uh, happy tale that was awaiting me. Um, so this is uh, socialist industrialization. And this is when uh, the communists, after the Civil War you mentioned, end up taking over. Um, and, you know, so here again, we have this really interesting uh, potential for a sort of break in the history. Um, and it seems to me that you're really arguing that it's oddly, and again, a sort of story of continuity. Um, and, you know, that the communists are trying to break free of the past with the Japanese and the nationalists, and they end up doing kind of the same thing. Um, and maybe a way of, of sort of um, talking about this a little bit differently um, would be to talk about the uh, um, the Fushun Coal Mine Museum with a bronze statue of Mao Zedong, and I quote, <laughs> um, I mean, which almost seems like comic relief at this point. So I want to talk, but, but the, the museum is obviously very important, and so is um, this massive observation tower there, which takes us back to the Fushun Colliery because it overlooks that pit that's in that uh, postcard we talked about right at the beginning. Yeah, uh, so, sure thing. So I mean, you know, the the coal mining museum with this with, with the kind of impressive observation tower that's uh, through uh, from which you can sort of look down into the the open pit. Um, um, and uh, sort of at the back, and then the the Mao statue at the front is sort of actually features in the in the epilogue, the the sort of concluding epilogue. But still, it's connected to one key event in this final chapter, which is um, 
uh, which is you know Mao's visit to Fushun in 1958, and the museum's actually built on the spot where he came to sort of view this open pit mine, uh, and visitors are meant to be sort of treated to this similar site, um, and you know one of the things that you you brought up earlier, I mean brought up here uh, in in this in this in this um, question about the about the chapter and your observations about it is is you know the the striking similarities and. Um, I think you know I am critical of all the you know all three regimes that are sort of featured in this book, but almost uh, uh, come down the hardest on the the Chinese communists. In part, I mean not so much because you know I I think it, it that their um, the the Chinese communist regime is 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 uh, uh, sort of more abhorrent than the the imperial japanese one uh, but more about the, uh, about my 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 soft critique comes across a little bit more sharply i think because of the uh, or uh, you know missed opportunity to go a different way um and i sort of acknowledge that there were all these extenuating circumstances and geopolitical factors as to why it was sort of important for uh, China um, in the 1950s to embrace the kind of uh, the soft level. I mean, the soft industrial development that it did, the soft socialist industrialization um, that it did um, with its heavy fo- I mean, its focus on heavy industry. Um, but you know, I the uh, soft the, the the critiques come in regard to you know at, at what cost also right and and I mean especially when this was an ostensibly soft worker society and you have um soft the the the, the um workers interests being soft undermined uh, by these various um endeavors and ambitions and um and in doing so i mean i i, I don't cite this in the book but i mean i'm sort of thinking about this a, a lot um thereafter and i mentioned on occasion in you know uh, when i i'm chatting with folks about this about this uh particular chapter uh which is that you know my, my critique here is also um sort of in conversation with uh some of the american leftists of the late 1940s um, such as CLR James or Grace Lee Boggs, who are um, issuing a very similar critique of uh, the of Stalinist Soviet Union as embracing a form of state capitalism, and and you know the and and this is where I sort of you know tr- try to hold the, the the Chinese communist regime's feet to the fire, right? I mean, it's it's um, it's because. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, in the most uncharitable, in a slightly uncharitable way on my on my part, perhaps I think that there's a poverty of imagination, right? That how can we imagine self um, self economic development so narrowly by this sort of basket of goods that we only sort of really appreciate in the aggregate? This thing that is. You know, this the figure of you know coal production or iron production, steel production that is that, I mean, has comparative meaning in uh, sort of used sort of abstractly to sort of ascertain where one stood in the world, but then when it came to its actual application and use on the ground, I mean that was it was um, sort of, um, I mean that that there were a lot of issues and problems that that came with with 
with, you know, uh, the the mass production of low quality coal, for instance, which was characteristic of the the, the great leap forward and um, the point in time when Fushun reached its uh, its its greatest output in 1960. Uh, which was twice as much as as the as what it had produced uh, at its peak in uh, sort of under Japanese colonial rule, um, and so um, yeah, and so I, I think that's where sort of the that's where I, I, I sort of um, stand at least with my um, analysis of of the the communist period and its and and its relationship to. Um, uh, the, the coal mining industry um, and energy uh, more generally. Yeah, and thank you for correcting me. I did misspeak. That was uh, the, the epilogue with the, the museum. Um, but I do want to talk about the, the epilogue because, you know, one of the things uh, that you do here in the epilogue is look at um, the decline after that peak uh, that you just mentioned in production um, and this sort of changing enemy econ- energy economies uh, of Japan and China, and also enemy economies, but energy economies of Japan and China um, in the decades um, since that. So you tell this as a story of contradictions um, and also sort of interestingly, you, you kind of tell it in concentric circles, right, going out from Fushun uh, to the world. Um, and, and I guess I want to ask if you finally see a kind of um, divergence rather than sort of parallels here in the way um, that Japan and China or uh, that, you know, Manchuria and the world or coal or whatever are, are we finally seeing divergence in these stories rather than this sort of brutal, endless continuity that you've kind of gone through in the chapters? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where I, I've sort of stayed my course, uh, Nathan, in that, like, you know, I, we sometimes talk about historians as, you know, lumpers and splitters, right? We sort of decide, you know, it's, this was more complicated than it was, or you know, this was sort of shared experiences. And I mean, this book is, a, is an act of lumping to some degree, uh, hopefully with not too much violence done to the, the actual history itself in the process. But I, I, wanted to sort of um, highlight the sort of, I mean, the various convergences uh, in, uh, I mean, at, at various levels, you know, from at, at the level of Fushun as a deindustrializing de- coal mining site uh, alongside other uh, coal mining sites uh, that have similarly been um, sort of exhausted. Uh, and in Fushun's case, it's, it's not because there's no more coal to be excavated from the ground, it's because a lot of the mining practices uh, in preceding decades were so unsustainable that it resulted in things like um, um, subsidence and the collapsing of, uh, of sites in, let's say, in the, um, in, uh, in the open pit that, um, that, made, that has rendered sort of mining um, almost not cost-effective because you have so much debris to, to clear up and um, and before you can actually get to the coal itself, uh, that and and but you know to sort of see it as this um, kind of global rust belt story, part part of it like a global rust belt story, um, and to um, you know highlight the the um, challenges that uh, people living there, the sort of miners who are working there, uh, face that. I mean, that we see not only, I mean, in Fushun, but uh, in other parts of the world as well, including um, 
in the US or I mean Ubari in Japan, for instance, and um, and other other um, sort of mining sites in decline. Uh, but then the the other thing was to um, also kind of uh, uh, and and. I mean, while they, you, you know, they can be really sort of very, I mean, there are very different sort of post, there are aspects of the post-war energy story in China and Japan that are very different. I mean, the most glaring one being sort of the, the story of nuclear in Japan. Um, I wanted to sort of highlight ways that, you know, in Japan itself is also a very, still a very fossil fuel country in spite of its associations with in you know popular imagination with um with uh sort of i mean prior to fukushima especially um with uh with with kind of green development if you want to call it that yeah i think the greenwashing of the kyoto protocol is was incredible yeah yeah, yeah. and so definitely wanted to sort of in, in that sense, show the ways uh, that, I mean, in, in Japan's case, it's, I mean, not only it's, it's enormous sort of domestic consumption of, of, um, of natural gas and, and the like, but also it's offshoring of production uh, to other sites uh, in the way that, I mean, we start to witness with, uh, with China and its, um, and um, the initiatives along the, the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, um, and then uh, and then ultimately for you know thinking about this then as as a as a host of kind of planetary challenges that we've um, that we we face um, and the and sort of issuing a a caution against the. Um, I mean, and this runs throughout the book, but then it's sort of return to it and, and make it a little bit more pronounced here. And the the, the conclusion is really the uh, of you know techno- the uh, the the limits of technocratic solutions to our um, our current uh, predicament and how we might um, begin to even imagine a habitable Earth. Um, um, even as as we 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 face um, this confluence of crises. Um, that uh, that's tied to sort of, sort of changes in climate but, and, 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 and the like. Yeah, and I guess uh, the, the final question I want to ask you here is um, if, if we're all around and survive long enough, um, what, is, what is the next project uh, we can uh, expect to uh, hear from uh, you about? What are you working on now? Yeah, no, thanks for, for asking. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm interested in in energy and 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 work uh, more generally and so this was my energy book and then and i mean i do sort of talk a fair bit about work uh, in it as well but uh, the next one centers on the sciences of work and on industrial psychology in particular and how industrial and industrial psychology in china from the 1930s to the present and how it functioned as a science of work and a technology of production i'm really interested in how uh, work became and functions as a as an object of scientific inquiry and how um, you know the sciences of work has intersected with uh, discourses about the nature and value of labor and how it's been shaped, self-mutually shaped, uh, as well. And I tell this through the the the, the story. I mean, 
through industrial psychology in China, uh, which goes through sort of multiple changes. But perhaps one interesting one to sort of highlight would be, um, you know, during the socialist period and the rejection of this field of study as a sort of capitalist tool of uh, exploitation uh, and its replacement with labor psychology that was ostensibly um, uh, more attentive to the interests and needs uh, and and well-being of workers, um, and so yeah, that's what I'm. I've been, I've been working on now. I'm doing a master's in industrial and organizational psychology, uh, to um, so I'm better write this book. So that's been sort of taking up some of my, my time as well. Uh, yeah, I guess some people did sour sourdough starters, and you're doing a master's in industrial psychology. <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating, and I, I I did hear the keyword there ostensibly in your description of uh, the alternative to industrial psychology. So uh, I'll definitely be looking uh, for that uh, for some uh, articles and such when they when they come out. Um, and good luck with the MA uh, or MS. Yeah. It's, it's an ELM. Ah. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, in, in any case, yes, good luck. Uh, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, and take care. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.